and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison. I'm the Programme Director for European Power and I'm standing in for Mark Leonard this week. We're going to be talking about Europe and the battle of narratives during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm really happy to welcome two ECFR Council members for this discussion, Christine Ockrent and Julia de Clark-Saxe. Christine is a renowned journalist and presenter of Affaires étrangères at France Culture Radio. And Julia is leading research at Oxford University on the role of language and emotion in the EU's narrative with a particular view to geopolitics. So thank you both very much for joining. The outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic has put leaders around the world and the way they communicate to the test. Every country wants to project themselves as a strong, capable crisis manager. And in these past months, we've seen how the ability to supply others with medical equipment can become a powerful tool. We've seen attempts to discredit other countries and their political systems over their response to the pandemic. And we've seen scientific facts being challenged by alternative facts and disinformation. The EU High Rep for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Josep Borrell, has called this a global battle of narratives and a struggle for geopolitical influence. And today we're going to be exploring this idea in more detail. Christine, if I could, I'd like to turn to you first. You've recently published a book called La Guerre des Récits, The Battle of Narratives, I think, in English, which explores the different approaches and strategies of three powers, the US, China and Russia, in developing a narrative around the COVID crisis to justify their decisions to the public. Can you briefly start us off by explaining the key takeaways for you from carrying out this work? Yes, of course. Thank you, Susie. Uh, happy to engage with Julia because I read her piece uh, with great interest. I've tried also in the book to address the difficulties for the EU to put together an effective narrative about the pandemic. The pandemic is teaching us all sorts of lessons, but the way China Almost from the start of the pandemic, certainly since the end of last January, Xi Jinping understood that he needed to try and turn, like in a judo pass, to try and turn the pandemic as an asset for the pretense of China to turn this century into the Chinese century. And ever since the end of January, we've seen throughout European countries, but actually all over the world, the Chinese narrative explain that indeed the way China has controlled the pandemic shows the superiority of its own model, not only health model, but also political one and an economic one. So that has been really, I think, a fascinating exercise. And this very day, you have stories coming out of Chinese media, which of course are all under regime control, explaining that the origin of the pandemic is not Chinese. Either it's coming from imported food, from uh, Europe in particular, frozen salmon, or, and that has been the storytelling throughout the past month, it's been coming from Italy, it's been coming from India, or maybe even the US military when they took part in some exercises in Wuhan in October 19. So you you have an extraordinary construction from Beijing about turning the pandemic into a narrative which explains how China is the, you know, the leading power. Facing that, we've had the richest country in the world, the one which has the most Nobel Prizes, the most extraordinary universities, I'm talking about the United States, really falling into collapse with the highest number, unfortunately, of dead 
And the outgoing president turning his own country or, or his own narrative of, of the pandemic into really a caricature. And we've seen be, beyond Trump, let's not lose time with that, although in my view, he's very much responsible for this current disaster. But we, we've also seen the American model crumble down. You know, not the public health, but the lack of insurance, the social system, and also the federal system. The fact that, as opposed to Germany, the federal system didn't quite work out. One word about Russia, which is also fascinating, as indeed Moscow is trying to put forward his own vaccine that was announced by Vladimir Putin himself on the 11th or 12th of August. At the time, he said that one of his uh, two daughters had already, with vaccine being tested in any form or fashion, given a shot. And this very this week, you can see Russian authorities putting forward the, the fact that this Sputnik vaccine is more effective than any other. One word about uh, the EU before turning over to, to Julia. You make a very good point. When you say that political narrative needs emotion, and it is very difficult indeed for the EU, in spite of Borrell's insistency on the fact that we need a European narrative, it's been extremely difficult for the EU as such to put together a narrative because each of our countries tried to face the pandemic on its own at the beginning. And then it became obvious that we couldn't do anything on our own. Yes, I absolutely want to come on to Europe shortly, because I, I, I think there's a lot to dig into in what you're saying there about the point on, on diversity. But before we do, can we just stay? You've talked about, Christine, the way that China and Russia have, have kind of stepped up their engagement very quickly in the battle of narratives. And I like this image you've given us of, the, of, of this as a judo pass. Julia, in your piece for ECFR, you looked at this in relation to their interference in Europe and its neighbourhoods and their attempts to p portray the, the EU and, and democratic systems more broadly as being too weak and too slow to contain the pandemic. This is something we've been looking at in um, ECFR's polling work as well in late April and early May, where we um, looked at perceptions of China and Russia in Europe after the, the first wave of the virus had struck. And in fact, in eight of the nine countries we surveyed within the EU, the share of respondents who'd adopted a more negative view of China in the past year had increased. And in some countries, this was even as much as by a factor of 10. And for Russia too, it was less pronounced, but those who said that their view of Russia had become more negative outnumber those who say it has improved in, in seven of the, the countries that we looked at. What's your sense, Julia, of, of how effective this has been, these efforts by China and Russia? And, and who do you think looks like they're kind of winning, if you like, a year on into the, the COVID crisis on the battle of narratives? Thank you, Susie, for having me. And, and thanks, Christine, for suggesting this great debate. And um, I think it's really an important issue in an important time. Before I get to that, I think it's a bit early to, to start saying who's winning right now in, in the midst of this battle that, that we're still in. But let me maybe set the scene a little bit why narrative matters so much for Europe and where we are. And, and then we can get to some of the issues that, that Christine already raised, the, the role of emotion, and also how effective have been other powers in in undermining the EU's narrative and the EU's image. I think the key point where we are right now is that I mean, narrative has always been crucial to the, the European project, of course, because it is something that's still relatively new and sort of discussing who we are and what we want to be doing was always crucial, but it was usually 
internally focused, right? It was sort of an identity building project and it still is in, in some ways. And of course, now this identity is being questioned, not just from within, but also increasingly from without. But I think what's crucial is that this is happening from both sides at the same time and there's an interplay between the two. So there are populist forces within the union that are challenging the sort of wider narrative of Europeans having a common identity and the necessity to, to work together on, on some of these essential questions that are facing us geopolitically and as, as both of you have already stressed, both China and Russia challenging the idea of a Europe being effective and united. I think that's the one narrative that's out there that we've known for a long time from the Russians, but also the Chinese, the sort of Europe is too weak and too slow. You've already said that, Susie. And also Europeans are divided. And of course, there's been a lot of playing, sort of divide and conquer. And then also this idea that democracy in itself is actually a system that's very ill-suited to dealing with the challenges of our time. And I think that's something that's crucial. Um, again, narrative, the sort of battle of the narratives is is nothing new. Sort of political propaganda has been around for as long as politics has been around. So we've known these challenges since, since ancient Greece. But what we now have is, of course, also, and I hope we can get onto that a bit, sort of new technologies that amplify all of this. And I think the COVID crisis is an interesting window into that because, Susie, as you've said, foreign powers have been interfering within Europe and also projecting into the neighborhood. And, and we're at a time where it's much more difficult for people to sort of see what is right and what is wrong, what is actually factual information and what is misinformation. You're also right, and I think that's that's quite crucial, that through the pandemic, China's image especially, even though they started off on, on a sort of high point, being quite destructive, if you will, and sort of interfering in, in European publics and Italy in particular, trying to divide uh, European member states and also in some of the neighbor countries, Serbia in particular, really being very forceful and sort of portraying themselves as the real saviors and uh, Christine talked about medical equipment and providing masks but really I mean across the board as you've said in, in several polls we've seen China's image has actually plummeted and there is something about this crisis that also requests a lot of sort of trust in institutions and a lot of people have actually turned again to political leaders where there has already been trust in the political system. So I think we have a mixed picture here. I think the sort of plummeting image of China can be encouraging for Europeans, something to rally around. Also, I think democracy is not done as a system but also, of course, the crisis itself and, and the economic outfall that will come from it even more makes publics a lot more vulnerable. So I think that's why the jury is still out. I think we're still at the beginning of some of the, um, the fallout that will come from this crisis. And so I think populations are also more susceptible still to misinformation, to feeling fragile and vulnerable and left alone. That's another poll that you've shown, Susie. Uh, Europeans did also feel quite left alone in this crisis. And I think that yeah. makes them feel more vulnerable. And so we have a bit of a mixed picture right now. Yeah, I mean, let's stay with this idea of, let's stay with, with looking at Europe in this. Christine, I'm keen to turn back to you. Intrigued to hear why you, you didn't choose, I, I don't think, to focus on Europe as, as one of the, the key actors in your recent book. But you've alluded earlier on to the issue of diversity in Europe. Do you think Europe is capable of coming up with a sort of a common story that speaks to people in different parts of Europe, that convinces in, in, in different parts of Europe? Are we capable of doing better kind of strategic comms? around this sort of thing within the EU? 
Susie, I did, of course, uh, cover Europe. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, I, I hope it will be translated in English pretty soon. No, of course, because it it was very interesting to see how common narratives is, uh, even with a common pandemic, so to speak, is difficult to build. Why? Because in the case of Europe, first of all, we're all democratic systems. And that's a huge difference in terms of narrative, of course, compared to China and Russia, and especially with, with the role not only of governments, but uh, social media, which are in, under total control in China and pretty much under control in Russia, although less so. When it, to, to get back to Europe, first of all, and that's the unique process of, of the Union, we have very potent national narratives at work throughout Europe, very emotional. And look at the way that Boris Johnson has played the fact that uh, the UK is the first European country to bring in the vaccine. It's so used to build up uh, a national narrative. Of course, in the context of Brexit, it takes a, a particular importance. But beyond that, I think the difficulty, and, and that's why I read the Julia's piece with great interest, the, the difficulty for a common EU narrative. And again, it's interesting to see that Borrell, together with von der Leyen, but especially Borrell, is, has uh, persistently insisted throughout the pandemic, uh, ever since it broke up, on the need to build such a narrative. But indeed, the EU communication is indeed cold fish, without <laughs> any Brexit illusion there. It's rational, it's technocratic, it's, frankly, it's quite dull. And so for a narrative to be powerful, it has to bring in emotion, it has, it has to bring in pride, it has to be uh, to bring in national unity, which is what, you know, the, the, the Beijing regime is doing with such a degree of caricature that I think it may explain, by the way, the sort of backlash uh, in European public opinion, which the ECFR uh, study very interestingly underlined. So I think when it comes to Europe, as opposed to all the other examples in the world, we, we do have that sort of confrontation, even without bringing in the populist opinion makers in, in the picture. But we do have this sort of competition between a national narrative, which goes on, which mm -hmm. is very much needed uh, in our societies, and a common narrative. And so I think an ECFR plays an important role in, in that respect. How can we help build a common narrative that is more forceful, which has more impact on public opinion and, and especially on young people. Julia, you're obviously sort of a few steps removed now, although you have previously advised former high reps for CFSP. Do you, do you agree with Christine's um, assessment of the EU narrative as cold fish? As you know, I mean, I've, I've actually argued that the EU has a good story to tell in many ways. Mm -hmm. and, um, so in my work, what I'm looking at is a little bit the how, the who, and the what of the narrative. So I'd say actually in terms of the what, the EU does have a good story to tell. Just heard that both in, in the neighborhood and in the union, uh, not only has, has the image of sort of China 
plummeted. Actually, also the the levels of support for European uh, cooperation and especially to to get us out of this crisis and internationally, that's uh, at a consistent high among citizens in terms of the political priorities that the European Union projects, climate change, a, a more and stronger role on the on the global stage, of course, battling the COVID crises. These, these priorities actually overlap also with the priorities of citizens as well. I think in general, the idea uh, still of, of being democracies and fighting for individual freedoms, even though that is being contested also within the union, and we see that these very days, Uh, is problematic as well, but overall that there's still a majority support for that. I think the coldness is maybe a a good issue to to look at uh, how do we communicate. And uh, I think that's, and especially coming from from the field of foreign policy, of course, and and as a former speechwriter and communications advisor as well, the EU has particular challenges. Christine already mentioned one of them, that there are, of course, also strong national narratives. And I think that's important. I think that's not necessarily a problem. I've worked a lot on identity as well. And just as there can be overlapping identities, I think there can be overlapping narratives. So that's fine. I think what's problematic or or challenging, let's put it that way, is that, of course, we're at a time of extreme political turmoil and lack of trust. So on one hand, you need to communicate more immediately, more emotionally, more empathetically. And we've seen both in European countries and elsewhere in New Zealand, when you have political leaders that communicate in that way throughout the COVID crisis, they fared extremely well. And not just in their popularity, I think that's important to understand. It's not just winning people sort of over in terms of your image, but actually in getting people to to follow these sometimes pretty extreme measures, let's face it, in terms of changing their lifestyles in order to combat the virus. So the narrative is actually something that's not a sort of add-on and selling a a sort of political message, but it's actually key to getting political results. Mm. And I think there on the the how, that's something that is, of course, in the European Union, where you have several member states, different communication challenges. That is really, really crucial. And I think here we've heard already the EU can come across as very technocratic. It is still quite fact-oriented. And I think, again, The EU is not the only one. We see this also. I've also worked for national administrations. This is a challenge of institutions in general. When it comes to political challenges, especially at the European level, facts still very much trump the narrative. Political leaders are quite wary of putting themselves out there and making themselves vulnerable, in particularly because it's such a volatile environment. So making yourself vulnerable when you're supposed to be united and strong seems yeah. counterintuitive, right? And yeah. I think that's yeah. where, the, where the crux is in a way that, as we know from sort of psychology and, and political psychology, of course, having this kind of degree of vulnerability of emotion, emotional communication is crucial, though. But that means you give up a little bit of, of political control as well. And of course, when there are many actors in the mix, that, that becomes more challenging. So finding that balance is, I think, important, uh, being personable for political leaders that often seem very far away. And let's put it, I mean, they are often quite far away uh, from <laughs> people's daily lives. We do also have, and we've discussed diversity, we have very diverse politicians, of course. We have commissioners from, from every member state. So we do actually have what ECFR also has a window into each member state, right? And mm-hmm. we can use that much more. So we actually have that diversity that can be mobilized. So I think there is a huge potential there to, to use that more and to communicate in a much more immediate way, keeping a common message, but doing it 
in a much more diverse and more immediate way. So you've both now alluded to to the sort of the the broader context here that that nations of the EU are trying to build these narratives in a, in a highly competitive world in which um, powers need to defend their interests and sometimes this is at the cost of of other powers or at least their their narratives and I'm, I'm keen to hear from both of you if that is the reality that we're working in then is there a way that we can build these national stories of competence and and the ability to manage crises at the same time as invest in international cooperation and reinvesting in the multilateral system. This is a key goal that the EU institutions have, have set out in their proposed common agenda with the new Biden administration in the US. You know, and we've heard very strong messages about the desire for re-engagement from the Biden-Harris camp. And what's your sense? Can these, uh, are these two th- sort of goals compatible in the current competitive environment? I would say it's high time for us, the European Union, to be selfish and to stress what our own priorities, what our own interests have to be. In, as you say, Susie, of course, a very competitive environment, but a, a scene where, and of course, we're all eagerly looking forward to the Biden administration, but the competition between the US and China will be the determining factor in the months and and the years to come. And I think that in that context, the EU has to put forward ever more forcefully its own priorities, its own interests, and of course, the multilateral game, as as you say, it's in our DNA. But again, I think we have to define our own priorities. And to get back to the core issue, which is how to build up and improve a European narrative. I think that vaccines, it's an excellent story that can be told to our public. And it's a story where there are many factors that are brought in because it's indeed a story where the Commission has played an important role in pre-ordering vaccines, in raising money. It's a story where we see the cooperation between American Big Pharma and Mm -hmm. and a German biotech, and of course, AstraZeneca and Oxford University. So I think that through the vaccine story, uh, the European narrative is gaining strength. But to get back to your question, of course, we, we have to play into the multilateral game, and we hope it will be restored to a degree. But this is indeed a time, it's not going back to the good old days, assuming there were ever any. And so I think we we have to be more forceful in, in putting forward again what our own priorities are in the coming months and years. Thank you. Julia, i give you the last words. Do you see this the same way? Are you optimistic about our ability to, to find this balance? I think this issue of priorities is really crucial. So I, I don't think there's a tension in between sort of defining one's own narrative and being very clear about one's own interests and stance in the world and, and cooperating with others. I think that's actually essential. I think Europe's on the right path there. I think that the Trumpies, in a way, have forced it to to focus a bit more on common interest and also uh, facing up to to this challenge that that we discussed earlier a little bit of Europeans feeling a bit more alone in the world they now have potentially 
potent and very cooperative partner again. That's that's a great development on the side of, of the US and, uh, and a partner that's very keen to work together. But that's also very clear that it wants Europe to, to play a much bigger role in the world and, and that it will have to focus itself, the United States, on, on their own domestic challenges as well. Because let's face it, I think all of our societies right now are both internally divided and, as you already said, facing a much more competitive geopolitical environment. So I think this key of defining one's interests and, and standing for something, I think the European Union has fared pretty well in the past, in sort of muddling through crises, it's, it's actually a, a great winner at, at muddling through. And I think that's something that becomes increasingly difficult in this hugely competitive environment. So Europe is learning to take position and to define its interests. I'm not necessarily sure that means being selfish, because I think in order to be strong, you have to have your own house in order. And this is something the EU is, is building. It's still struggling somehow. And I think it needs to recognize to bring back the, the relevance of narrative, the strategic relevance of narrative again as well. And to that there are disagreements still in terms of values inside the union. There are disagreements and they've been quite public on sort of how do we best defend ourselves? How independent or not independent do we have to be? These are all very, very important issues to discuss. But I think it's important also for Europeans to realize that the outside world is looking. And so they need to be very clear about what can we rally around? Which disagreements can we have amongst ourselves? And in which fora do we discuss them? And what do we broadcast to the wider public? And yes, also having some tough decisions and setting priorities is difficult in a union of 27. So I think that will be very, very important for Europeans to keep in mind, to be very clear, what is their common future? What can they achieve together? What do they want to achieve with their partners to send clear messages and, and to stick to them? Thank you very much. That's, um, I think, a, a really good point for us to bring this discussion to a close. We've obviously only scratched the surface sorry, of this huge subject, but I'm really grateful to you both for taking the time on this. And we still have to do our final section, the bookshelf at the end of the podcast. So obviously, I'm going to put on the bookshelf the publications that we've been discussing here. La Guerre des Récits by Christine Ocant, soon to be available in English, as she has told us. From Brussels with Love, How the EU Can Win the Battle of Narratives from Julia de Clark-Saxa, which can, you can find on the ECFR website. Website. And also, Julia has referenced a report that I wrote with Pavel Zerka based on our public opinion polling called Together in Trauma, Europeans and the World After COVID-19. And um, both those last two can be found on ecfr.eu. But now I'd like to hear from you both. What, what else are you reading? What's on your bedside table at the moment? Julia, let's start with you this time. Okay, I always have several books on my bedside table. So I'll give you the top four. Goodness. Maybe for us to escape from, from the, the pandemic, I, I'm rereading and making a bit more headway thanks to lockdown on um, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain. What better way uh, to escape this whole madness than to, to check yourself into a sanatorium <laughs> high up in the, the Alps, right, to, to get through all of this? So I think that's always and just the beauty of the language. And, and also, of course, this idea of, you know, looking at the world slowly crumbling while you're up there on, on your mountain. So if we're talking about narrative, that, that's one book that I come back to. Um, maybe on, on history as well, another one, nonfiction, but reads as beautifully as fiction is Love in the Blitz by Eileen Alexander. These are love letters, actually, that have been written during, during the Blitz. And I think, again, a really nice window into sort of how to keep some sort of normalcy or, or even joy at times of really extenuating 
circumstances. I think maybe something also that some of us can relate to. Un pays pour mourir, which Christine might know by Abdallah Taya. I think it's just been translated into English as well, um, A Country for Dying. This is a, a look at sort of two sex workers, and a North African and Iranian sex worker in, in Paris. And sort of this was written in, in 2010, but it kind of shows some of the, the European side maybe to the, to the Black Lives Matter, the echoes of colonialism. Um, I think a really important part of, of the European narrative as well and lastly that the book of that I keep coming back to when it gets called outside by excellent writer and a very very good friend of mine Taya Selassie Ghana must go which is just really beautifully written it's the kind of sentences you can wrap around yourself like a cashmere blanket lovely well they're very varied um set of recommendations there Christine um what, what about you what are you reading I'm being much more modest <laughs> or frugal uh, <laughs> So I keep going back to Stefan Zweig, Le Monde d'hier, the world of yesterday. I think it has very much with the, our difficulties to, to cope with adjusting such a fast evolving world. And I strongly recommend a book by Eric De Luca, who is an Italian writer. It's called Impossible. It's a short book. It's a fascinating dialogue between uh, an aging activist. Of course, it all gets back to, you know, the tragic history of uh, Italy in the uh, 70s and 80s, and a young judge. And it, it has to do with engagement, justice, friendship, treason. Fascinating. Uh, so I strongly recommend it. Well, thank you very much indeed. You've both been as generous in your recommendations as you have with your time in the comments in the, in the substantive discussion. And I'm really grateful to you both for, for both of those things. But to draw it to a close now, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or elsewhere. But above all, please do give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. And for now, from Christine O'Krent, Juliet de Clark-Saxer and myself, Susie Dennison, it's goodbye. The researcher for this week podcast is Julia Reichler and our editor is Marlena Riesel. Mm-hmm.